Well, our worship continues this morning by turning our attention to God's Word. Join me in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, where we left off last week, we're in verses 37 through 43. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 43, where John is answering a very important question for us as he's transitioning into the next major section of his gospel. From the middle of chapter 1 until the middle of chapter 12, John has chronicled three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. It's been a ministry filled with glory, a ministry of miracles, a ministry filled with teaching, glorious claims that Christ has claimed for himself, sign miracles showing that every claim he has made, that he is God's son, is indeed true. You could even see chapter 1, verse 14 as a summary of these first 12 chapters. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. But when we are going to enter into chapter 13, all of that is going to change. Because as chapter 13 begins, the glorious Christ becomes the rejected Christ, the betrayed Christ, the crucified Christ. Jesus' miracles stop. His public teaching grows silent. And John slows the pace of his narrative down dramatically. For the next seven chapters, from chapter 13 through chapter 19, those next seven chapters, John focuses on only one day, that's it, one day of Jesus' life, one final 24-hour period. The first 12 chapters, three and a half years, and now these next seven chapters, one 24-hour day from Thursday night of Jesus' Passion Week into Friday afternoon. These next seven chapters are going to focus on only one event, and that event is Jesus' death. How Jesus will prepare his apostles to live in his absence. We'll focus in on the promises Jesus gives, tells them what is going to happen after he leaves. We'll see the final prayer he makes for his disciples and for all who will believe. We'll see a close friend betray Jesus. We'll see an apostle deny him. We'll look at the trial before a Gentile ruler, the crown of thorns being placed on his head. He'll be raised up upon a cross. He'll be buried. Seven chapters that center around Jesus' death. So there's one question, there's one question that John must answer before he makes that transition. The question is this, how could Jesus' ministry that was so glorious and so compassionate, so filled with mercy and grace, a ministry that had so much promise when it started, How could that ministry end with so much public shame and so much disgrace, so much hatred and antagonism? Why did Israel reject her Messiah? Why did Jesus' ministry, it's Jesus, why did Jesus' ministry not end in revival? Revival. 
but instead end in rejection. I could ask the question this way, did Jesus fail? Because quite frankly, on the surface, it looks like he failed, doesn't it? Very few followers, very few thousands have left him throughout his life. He's just experienced a wholesale rejection by the crowds. That's how verse 34 ends. They scoff at him. They revile him. The religious elite, they're the keepers of the law, the teachers of the law. They've not only rejected him, but back in chapter 11, they now sentence him to death. They are going to kill him. Was he a failure in gospel ministry? Was Jesus not convincing enough in his teaching? Was he not persuasive enough through his miracles? Did Jesus do something wrong? Maybe it's God the Father's fault. Maybe he failed in sending his son. Or maybe just unbelief, that's triumphed. Those are the questions we should be asking as we come to the end of chapter 12. And quite frankly, the application is clear. This is the same dilemma we face today. We see unbelief permeate our world. We have family members who have no interest in the gospel. When we have neighbors and coworkers, friends, they're burdened with the guilt of sin, but they're apathetic to forgiveness of sin. The question again remains, why do people reject the gospel of Jesus? It's perplexing. Because we've just heard two testimonies, right? Two testimonies of the glorious gospel. So why would anyone reject that? Why would anyone scoff at that? Or just say, you know, it's not from me. It's an important question to answer because as we saw last week, this is a question and an answer that undergirds our ambassadorship, our calling to be those who speak the gospel for Jesus. The answer to that question, why do people not believe, why do people reject the gospel, that answer is going to determine our method of evangelism. Is it up to us to make someone believe? Do we have to be persuasive even further and more? Is it up to us to answer every skeptic's question? What's our calling? What's our method? Are we simply to point people to Jesus like Jesus did? Or are we responsible to do something more? This also will answer or determine the message we proclaim, the message we proclaim. Do people reject Jesus because we're not winsome enough in our gospel presentation? They reject the gospel, so we've failed. We aren't winsome enough. Uh, or maybe this question, how upfront should we be about sin? How upfront should we be about sacrifice or hell or judgment? Should we backdoor into those themes? because they're just too offensive. So let's backdoor. Let's maybe bait and switch. Do people reject the gospel because we mention judgment? And it's an important 
to answer that question, why do people reject the gospel? Because that will determine how we measure our success. Are we only successful if someone gets saved and is baptized on Sunday morning? Or are we successful in our ambassadorship when we're faithful to point people to Jesus? Again, it's a foundational question. It determines our method, our message, the way we measure our success in our ambassadorship. So John here, as he transitions now, he transitions. He gives us four reasons why Israel rejected their Messiah. Apply it to us today. Four reasons why people still do not believe the gospel of Jesus. We saw reason number one last week. People reject the gospel because of the hardness of their heart. There's a reason. People reject the gospel because of the hardness of their heart. That's verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs, so many in number, thousands of miracles, and so great in power, miracles that span the entire spectrum of existence from illness to to disease, nature, demons, death, Despite all of that, what is Israel's response? Continue verse 37. They were not believing. Imperfect tense. They were still not believing. Continuing in their unbelief of him. So the principle is this. Unbelief is not a lack of evidence issue. Unbelief is a hardened heart issue. Unbelief is always irrational, always illogical. What greater evidence could you give? Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so again, by application, we apply it this way. The hardened heart of an unbeliever can only be broken not by logical argumentation and not by philosophical reasoning and not by debating the evidence. The hardened heart of unbelief can only be broken by speaking the gospel. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Now, let me add something here because a question came up after the service last week and it's a good question. Good question. I just want to take a, a moment to answer it. The question was this, if that is true, and I think it is, then where does apologetics, where does the defending the faith Where does that come into play when giving the gospel? Because after all, what does Peter command us? Always be ready to what? Make a defense. Always be ready to make a defense. Offer evidence. Give reasons to everyone who asks you. So if unbelief is not a lack of evidence issue, then should we even give evidence for our faith? Or do we just simply ignore the question? Ignore the question of the skeptic and just simply give the gospel. Again, good questions. I would answer it, first of all, this way. First, there are great apologetic books out there. Great books out there. And I would say, buy the books. Even better, read the books. You have evidence that demands a verdict. That's been out for like decades there. 
um, the book Reasons We Believe. That's one of my favorites. I have given that to, to a bunch of people even here uh, in the congregation. It's one of my favorites. Uh, the book More Than a Carpenter, great apologetic book. It's small, small little, little deal. That was one of the books that was used to, uh, to, for my call into the ministry, was reading that book. Uh, you have organizations like Answers in Genesis. There's good apologetic resources out there. Again, buy them, read them. But having said that, what we need to understand is that those resources have their place, and they certainly do. They have their place. None of them, though, none of those has the power to change a heart. None of them. They do have strength. What is their strength? The strength is that they provide a hearing with the unbeliever. Their strength is that they provide an inroad to bring the gospel to one who has a lot of questions. There's that inroad. There's a conversation that takes place. There's apologetic arguments out there and they're good. We use them, why? Because it shows that the Christian faith is not irrational. It's always the knock. That faith is just irrational. It's not irrational. It's not unreasonable. It's not senseless or absurd. But, but we must make the transition from using these apologetic answers and we must make the transition to the gospel of Jesus. Because even if we memorize every resource here, you memorize it and you answer every skeptic's question, that does not guarantee that they will come to saving faith. The transition must be made. Romans 10, faith comes from what? Hearing, and hearing specifically answers in Genesis, though it's good. No, hearing what? The word of Christ. They hear the word of Christ. The Spirit uses that, that word to change the heart. Regeneration takes place when the gospel is explained and the Holy Spirit in his supernatural power uses that gospel to break the heart of unbelief. That's how the, the gospel takes root in a heart. That's how regeneration happens. And so buy the books, read them, learn them. Again, great inroads for the unbeliever. But make sure you, we make that transition to the message the Holy Spirit uses to break that hardened heart. What is that message? What is the message of the gospel that changes the heart of man? We've heard it in baptism. We've sung about it. And now I'm gonna repeat it. It's that Christ lived a perfect life on behalf of those who could not live up to the holiness of God. He then went to the cross to die a sacrificial death to absorb God's wrath for sin. He then resurrected gloriously. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And he will one day return in great victory. That's our hope. That's the gospel. We make the transition to that message and then wait for the Spirit to do his work of regeneration. So whoever asked that question, hopefully it's good enough. Reason number two, reason number two. People reject the gospel because of the hardening hand of God, because of the hardening hand of God. 
So you have the hardened heart on one side here in the passage. But then John notes that there is the hand of God that actually hardens unbelief even further. There are times when God turns persistent unbelief into final unbelief. There are times when God's patience runs out and he removes his restraining hand of grace and he gives the unbeliever exactly what they want, more unbelief. Look at verse 39. For this reason, they could not, underline that, could not believe. They choose not to believe. Verse 37, now they cannot believe. Why? Because Isaiah said, speaking of Yahweh, he has blinded their eyes and he, Yahweh, hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. This shows the urgency of our ambassadorship. This shows that God's grace, his patience does have limits. There is a real possibility that God's judgment might fall upon an unbeliever even before the great white throne judgment in the future. God's judgment can fall on an unbeliever now in their lifetime. He could seal them in their chosen rejection. This is why Paul says and calls the believer to beg, to beg on behalf of Christ. Plead, be reconciled to God. Don't delay, don't take God's grace for granted. Look up to verse 35. This is why Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. Darkness is coming. Don't delay. It's the hardening hand of God. It brings us to the last two reasons John gives here why the gospel was rejected in Jesus' day, why it's still rejected today. Reason number three. Reason number three, people reject the gospel because they fear man more than they fear God. They fear man more than God. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, this is the Sanhedrin now, they just condemned Jesus to death back in chapter 11, but now many of them, we read here, believed in him. So at this point, we, we might want to rejoice. Finally, faith, belief, salvation, They've seen the error of their ways. They've seen all the evidence Jesus has offered. They've heeded his call. Leave the darkness of sin. Come to the light of holiness and forgiveness. But we need to remember that throughout John's gospel, that phrase, believe in him, does not always indicate true, saving, genuine faith. Remember back in John chapter eight, as Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Same phrase, believe in him. And that's the group that Jesus will look at and say, you of your father, the devil. 
they quote-unquote believed, they weren't true believers. We saw this back in John chapter 2 when many believed in Jesus' name, but then we read that Jesus on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. He saw their faith. It was deficient faith. That's the faith the religious leaders have here in verse 42. It's not saving. It's rocky ground faith. It's shallow faith. Remember back to the parable of the soils that Jesus told the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. That's happened with these religious leaders. The seed was sown. They've seen the miracles. They have no explanation for them. They've heard Jesus' claims about himself. They cannot refute them. They know the scriptures. They know the prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled as the coming Messiah. Seed was sown They have obviously some kind of faith. They believe in some way in him. But it was shallow faith. Because the faith here in verse 42 had no firm root. It was only temporary to borrow Jesus' language. And when affliction or persecution, mark that, when persecution came or when persecution was threatened... Because of the word, immediately that shallow faith falls away. That's what happens here with these rulers. Yes, some believe, but continue verse 42. Because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. To confess, to speak openly, publicly. They believed in some way, but they refused to take their stand with Christ. They were believing cowards. They were unwilling to experience the public indignation that came with saving faith. The threat of persecution, they fall away. Now we know two people in this group, two people. First of all, this would have included Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night. He said, you're from God. I have some kind of faith. But Jesus looks at him and says, you must be what? Born again. Yes, you have some faith, but it's not true faith, saving faith. At this point, he's still not a believer. He's still not confessing Christ. Later on, we'll meet Joseph of Arimathea. He was a ruler. He will ask Pilate for Jesus' body, John 19. He'll even fulfill Isaiah 53, place Jesus in his own tomb. He'll confess Jesus later. He doesn't confess him now. He's not a believer at this point in the story. Why is that? What's keeping them from coming to Christ? Answer, they were afraid. They feared man more than they feared God. Finish the verse. They don't confess Christ for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. In their desperation, the Pharisees' desperation to hold on to their own power and prestige, they make a threat. They they take the nuclear option. 
They say, if you're even thinking about confessing Jesus, you're cast out. We want nothing to do with you. You're not allowed into the synagogue. This is as serious as you can get. It was a threat. It was the pressure that exposed what kind of faith these rulers had in Jesus. Persecution exposes the reality of our faith. Understand the scenario here. Being banned from the synagogue meant that you were cut off from all religious and social life, everything in that culture. You'd be barred from the scrolls of God's word. They don't have Bibles to take home with them. Not only that though, they would be cut off from the community and all the social and economic consequences. They would be considered unclean They'd be on the level of a despised Gentile. They'd be treated as a spiritual dog. There were three forms of excommunication during the first century, three forms. The first was the snub, the snub. You insulted a a learned person, you're removed from the synagogue for seven days. You're put in time out for a week. It's a snub. The second was separation. After being warned three times for an offense and there's no repentance, you're removed from the synagogue for 30 days. You're not allowed to associate with anyone, even eat with anyone during that time. But by far the more serious of the three was the ban. The ban. An indefinite period of time when the offending party could not be hired for a job, could receive no form of teaching from the scriptures, they could receive no financial, emotional assistance from anyone within that community. That's what the Pharisees have threatened. You're even thinking about confessing Christ? You're banned, thrown out. One historian puts it this way, since the synagogue was the center of religious and communal life, expulsion from it represented a severe form of social ostracism, as well as effectively barring a person from worshiping God in the company of his people. Another commentator, from our modern perspective, we can hardly imagine the horror of excommunication in Jesus's time. Such a ban would curse the people forever from the religious life of their community. They have nothing if this happens to them. It's a threat that worked. It's a threat that worked. This is the threat that caused the parents of the, of the blind man who was healed, caused them to not confess Christ back in chapter 9. We read his parents were afraid. It's a fear issue. Unbelief is a fear issue. His parents were afraid of the Jews. They feared man more than God. Why? For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This is such a powerful threat. Jesus will even warn his own disciples that this is coming when he leaves, John 16. 
Jesus says, you stay faithful to me, understand the consequences. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. You'll lose everything. Your faith is going to be tested. You're going to be squeezed to recant. So this is why some of the religious leaders, again, who could not deny the miracles, who could not refute the message, this is why they refused to take a stand with Christ. They feared. They feared losing their reputation among the people. They feared losing their place of religious authority. They feared the ridicule they would hear, the dishonor they would receive. They feared losing their name, their standing. They feared the temporal consequences of saving faith, the loss of finances, the loss of influence, the loss of a community, the loss of a family. They feared all those temporal losses more than they feared a holy God. Now understand their reaction. They're not going to confess Jesus because of fear. Understand that response in light of Jesus's warning. Mark chapter eight. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father. Shame for Jesus and his gospel now will incur an eternal shame from him later. That's the warning. Mark that word shame, ashamed of him. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm taking my stand with Christ, with his words. The same warning is repeated later. Revelation 21, this time from the resurrected glorious Christ. Revelation 21, for the cowardly and unbelieving, those who are cowardly showing itself and not believing, those who refuse to confess Jesus, take their stand with him. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. It's for the believing, quote unquote, believing cowards. Warren Worsby has said it best, better to fear God and go to heaven than to fear man and go to hell. Now, go back to verse 41. Because there's a contrast within this passage. Contrast between the true believer who is willing to confess Christ publicly no matter the cost and the unbeliever represented here by the religious leaders, the unbeliever who fears man and falls away when persecution comes. Here's the contrast. It culminates in verse 41. In verse 38, John quotes Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 53, who has believed our reports. In verse 40, John quotes Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes. Each passage is Isaiah's rebuke against unbelieving Israel. But then notice verse 41. John says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. It's an astounding statement here. There's two main phrases, important. The first is Isaiah saw his glory. 
Isaiah saw his glory. In the context of Isaiah, it's the glory of Yahweh. He saw Yahweh's glory. It's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 6. We all know the vision, don't we? Isaiah sees the throne room of God. The angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, 1, the Lord was sitting on a throne. He's lofty, he's exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. And that's, that's a train of the robe. It's actually, more specifically, the hem of his garments. That small hem, it fills. It's how great and glorious the king is. It fills the room. Angels surround the throne. Worship permeates. God is worthy of this worship. Smoke fills the place. Yahweh's transcendent and separate. There's an earthquake that shakes the foundation of this room. That's Yahweh's holiness. It's a majestic scene. Yahweh's king. But in John's context, who does John say Isaiah saw? Jesus. Still Yahweh, yes, but he sees Christ. Christ was that divine king in Isaiah chapter 6. It's Christ's glory that filled the room. It's Christ's hem that filled the temple. So John is saying here, this is Christ's deity. This is his glory. He's majestic and mighty. Isaiah saw Christ's glory. So that's the theology, the Christology of what John's saying. But that's not the main point of verse 41. The main point is this. It's not that Isaiah saw Christ's glory, though that is true. No, the main point is that Isaiah what? Spoke about his glory. He spoke about it. That's the second phrase. And he spoke of him. Isaiah sees the glory of Christ. He doesn't stay silent. He can't stay silent. Isaiah sees the glory of Christ and he doesn't cower in the midst of the persecution that he knows he will face. Hebrews tells us that Isaiah was sawn in two. That's how his life ends. He knows that's coming. Rejection. Yet Isaiah still confesses Yahweh. He still takes a stand with the promised Messiah. Why? Because he feared God more than he feared man. When you truly see Christ's glory, guess what? You speak of Christ's glory. That's the contrast here. The true believer represented here by Isaiah, he's willing to confess Christ, take his stand with the Messiah. He'll do it publicly no matter the cost. But the unbeliever, represented by the believing cowards, the religious leaders, they will not take their stand with Christ. They feared man more than they feared God. They really did not see the glory of Jesus. This is the third reason John gives here for why people reject the gospel. It's a fear issue. It's not an evidence issue. 
It's not a winsome issue. It's not because we mention sin too soon. It's because they fear man more than they fear God. Now let's draw out some application for us. Three ways we can apply this principle. Here's the first. First of all, we must remember when we give the gospel, we must remember that not all positive responses to Jesus are genuine and saving. We need to remember that. Not all faith is saving faith. Again, we see that here, though many claim to believe in Jesus, they were not willing to take their stand with him. Matthew 12 is clear. He who is not with me is what? Against me. It's not that those people lose their faith. They never had saving faith. And so we must be careful of assuring someone of their salvation. Very careful. That's not our job, by the way, to assure somebody that they are truly saved. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Instead, what do we do? It's our job to call that person to make their salvation sure. Call them to live in loving obedience to Jesus, persevere in his word, take a bold stand for his gospel. Second way we can apply this. We must remember that there are no secret followers of Jesus. There are no incognito Christians and thus, we must be upfront about the costs involved in coming to Jesus and saving faith. This is Jesus' evangelistic message. Here it is. You must take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said that to the crowd of unbelievers. Unbelievers do not hide in the shadows. They don't cower under threat. They take their stand for Christ no matter the cost. We must be upfront about the cost of saving faith. And then third, a third way we can apply this. We must evaluate our own faith. Isn't it so true? It's easy to, to hear a, a, a message and apply it to others. Anyone ever been there? Oh man, that person on that side of the room, they need to hear this. Let's apply this to us. Ask the question, do I fear man more than I fear God? To quote J.C. Ryle, let us often ask ourselves whether our Christianity costs us anything. Does it entail any sacrifice? Has it the true stamp of heaven? Does it carry with it any cost? If not, we may well tremble and be afraid. We have everything to learn. A gospel which costs nothing is worth nothing. It will do us no good in the life that is now. It will lead to no salvation in the life to come. Do I fear man more than I fear God? This leads into the fourth reason John gives here as he makes his transition. Fourth reason why Israel rejected their Messiah again. The fourth reason still today people reject the gospel. I'll just touch on it briefly. Reason number four. 
People reject the gospel because they value earthly praise more than God's reward. They value earthly praise more than God's reward. They love the temporal more than the eternal. It's verse 43. Another reason why Israel refuses Christ for they love. This is agape love. It's a strong word for love. This is deep affection. This is meaningful love. But in this case, it's misplaced love. They love the approval, the honor, the praise. That word approval is actually doxa. It means glory. They love the glory of man. It's the same word used for Christ's glory. They did not see the glory of Christ. They valued the glory of man more. They love the glory of, of men rather than the approval, the glory, the praise, the reward that comes from God. That last phrase, the approval, glory of God, that refers to what God will do on the last day when he welcomes his people to himself. He will offer them praise, not in worship, but in reward. And all John is doing here, this is John's summary. All he's doing is referring back to John 5. He's summarizing what Jesus said earlier. This was Jesus' warning. How can you believe? It's impossible for you to believe when you receive glory. Same word. When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory from the one and only God. It's impossible for you to believe. If you love temporal glory, temporal approval, when you value the earthly, earthbound praise more than God's eternal reward, you will not come to Christ. John here, Jesus and John 5, they both say it's an either or. Do you want praise from man now? Or do you want exaltation from God later? And so important is this warning. So insidious and deceptive is man's approval. John feels the need to repeat the same warning on multiple occasions. John 5, we read it here in John 12. But then again later in 1 John chapter 2. A warning to the church says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, loves the world's approval, loves the world's exaltation, loves the world's applause, the love of the Father is not in him. The gospel is only for those who cherish the glory of God who cherishes his, his eternal reward more than the earthly temporal approval of man. And so again, there are applications we can draw here. Three of them again, first of all. Let's start personal this time. We need to ask ourselves the same question. Whose glory are we most concerned about? 
Whose glory are we most concerned about? Whose approval are we seeking on a daily basis? Do we value the praise from our peers more than our eternal reward from our Father? The implied warning here of the passage is don't let this happen to you. Because the temptation is to go that way, to go the way of the world, the way of the unbeliever. Find your approval there. That's the temptation. We must guard our heart against the longing to be approved by this fallen world. Second application, it's the same as the second application previous. We must be upfront about the cost involved in saving faith. It's repeated here. We must let the unbeliever know coming to Christ means losing the world's approval. It means turning in repentance from the world's applause. 1 John 3 is clear and as true today as it was then. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. Be surprised that that will happen. Saving faith is not valued by the world, it's despised. And then a third way of application. We must not allow rampant unbelief to silence our witness. We must not let unbelief silence us. It is true, unbelief pervades this world. It is true, more people reject the gospel than accept the gospel. Just think of the parable of the soils. Three soils reject it, one receive it. More people rejected Jesus in his day than accepted him. Yet what do we read in verse 44? Verse 44, did the unbelief of the nation silence Jesus? Absolutely not. Jesus cried out. Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And Jesus says this in the midst of gospel rejection. Yet he is not muzzled. And Jesus still offers a final gospel appeal. Again, the temptation is what? Grow silent, because unbelief is there, maybe strong unbelief. Unbelief should not silence us. Instead, we should allow unbelief to motivate us in our gospel witness.